Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have um, Mark Howard Ross with us from um, uh, he's the author of Slavery in the North, Forgetting History and Recovering Memory. And anybody who's listened to the podcast knows that I often reference it as a preservation book. So thank you. Thank you, Mark, for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. So tell me a little bit about your background. Um, I'm a political scientist by training. And I, um, I, I've worked in a lot of different countries uh, over, over the, the years. Um, I taught at Bryn Mawr College for 46 years uh, until I retired a few years ago. Um, and I have uh, looked at a lot of different cultures and, and people. And uh, one of the exciting things about being able to do what I've done is that I could study new projects as I came along. I never thought I was going to do this book on slavery. Right. So what, what, what led you to begin studying slavery and specifically slavery in the northern, the northern colonies and states? Well, um, the, the uh, story is that I had uh, I finished a book that I published in 2007 um, looking at uh, different places in the world, including the United States, that have had intense conflicts around cultural issues. Cultural issues, uh, meaning ones that um, don't necessarily have intrinsic meaning in terms of power, like money and land and 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 whatnot, but um, represent things to people where they fight bitterly. For example, language disputes. Canada has had really um, uh, a, a hard time. It's it's less now but about English versus French right. as the national language and, the, and, and, um, and Quebec ha- had to ban English in many uh, places. Um, but that's also true in other parts of the world as well. In, in uh, Spain, uh, two areas in particular uh, have wanted to make and have made um, local languages uh, spoken by millions of people, um, official languages along with right. Spanish. Uh, and, and that's produced tremendous uh, problems in, in, in those regions, particularly the Catalans now in, uh, 
uh, the eastern uh, part of, of Spain. Um, I've looked at the uh, things like the holy sites in Jerusalem. And uh, why is it that these uh, sites produce so much tension, anger, and wars? Right. Um, and, you know, what's, what's behind it? There's always something behind these, these situations that I call identity. It's people's group identity and who they are. And, and uh, groups that feel, or people that feel their identities are, are at risk and threatened um, get very upset. And, and so uh, those uh, kinds of conflicts are often very difficult to resolve. Right. Uh, and, and many of them don't get resolved. Um, I looked at the controversy that dragged on for decades in the American South about um, the Confederate flags, Confederate battle flags that were part of state flags in right. South Carolina, in Georgia, in Mississippi. Uh, and, and those produced ongoing conflicts that are now in a different place um, than they were, but it certainly was not something that was resolved very quickly. Uh, and even now there are people um, angry about those things. We can see fights, I, I, didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time in, in those projects looking at monuments. Uh, yeah. uh, monuments, uh, I mean, now, you know, all the stuff in the South um, about monuments. And, and in a city like Philadelphia where I live, We've got a tons of uh, Civil War monuments and nobody gives a damn. I've taken <laughs> to see right. them and they say, what is that? Why right. do we have that? Nobody even there? stops to read the, read the plaque. <laughs> no. On the parkway in Philadelphia, there's the, the uh, war to the, uh, the monuments to the Civil War uh, soldiers who fought from here. You ask people, what's that? I, say, oh, I don't know, it's a piece of stone or something. Right. And it's a big, it's a, big thing. Um, I went to South Africa because I was particularly interested in South Africa after uh, uh, there was the change in the transformation of power in the 90s. Right. I went in the early 2000s and asked what happened to the monuments and the memorials and the museums that dominated South Africa. And they were all uh, white and often only Afrikaner. And what happened when when power shifted in South Africa? And it was really very interesting. Um, they didn't destroy most of them. And they didn't change most of them. What they did is they added to what I call the, their sacred landscape. And and by addition, um, they they for a time um, were very successful. And was that the, so? Did they? Did they re retain the monuments that were that were um, were there and just added other context or, or things like that? Is that what is that how they handled it in South Africa? It, they did different things. Sometimes okay. they would uh, build um, a, a new site. For example, on Robben Island, where um, Nelson Mandela and and the oh, yes. people in the ANC were imprisoned for so long, they turned that into a historical site where you can go visit. And there's, a, and there's a tour of that. Mm -hmm. um, they had museums, they've changed some exhibits in the museums. They built new museums. Um, they built new monuments. Um, and, and so they used addition rather than destruction. It right. wasn't like the former Soviet Union that they just knocked down all the, uh, 
old statues uh, of uh, Lenin and Stalin. Uh, I think, so, yeah, I was just I was just going to say, I and I I'm not this is not my area of expertise, but just based on my recollection of history, it seems like that's probably more more typical to like just knock down the statue and like move on. Is that is that your your understanding also? Well, there are different things in in, yeah. um, in Hungary, uh, starting, I think, in the uh, late uh, 19th century. When regimes changed, they took the statues of the of the former rulers, yes. and they put them in a park in the city in Budapest. <laughs> yeah. So you can go see literally dozens and dozens of, of statues of, of people who you know were important in the past, but they didn't destroy them. Yeah. But they don't leave them out on the street where they once were. Yeah, that's interesting. So different societies do different kinds of things. Um, in terms of remembering the past or forgetting the past. Uh, so tell me, tell me about about your book, the slavery in the North, that forgetting history and recovering. Memory. Oh, so so how I got into that when okay. I was finishing the previous book, um, right uh, less than a mile from my home, uh, I uh, I learned about the site of an Independence Mall. Um, which is a block from the Libertyville. Um, a historian had found the records of the building that was living, uh, that was built on the corner of 6th and Market Street. Right. But the building was destroyed in the 1830s. It was the building in which George Washington lived when he was president of the United States. And research showed that he uh, had uh, brought uh, nine enslaved people from Mount Vernon right. in Virginia to live with him and work as his, um, uh, I don't call them servants, he, no. his slaves yeah. in the president's house. And all kinds of people were saying, how's that possible? It couldn't have happened in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was part of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was a free state. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, um, we, we had the gradual abolition. <laughs> it yeah, was well, gradual. it turned out it turned out that um, Pennsylvania didn't end slavery in the state until 1845. Right. So it was very gradual, but people didn't recognize that. Um, they said the Quakers were here, and then I would say to people, "Hey, listen." The Quakers were here and there were Quaker abolitionists, but guess what? In the um, 18th century, until the beginning of the American Revolution, the Quakers, who were a wealthy group, were among the largest slaveholders in Pennsylvania. Right. So it's not quite as simple as, oh, Quakers, we couldn't have had slavery. Right. So I got interested in, in um, you know, the story behind it. And... Uh, uh, there were uh, demands by uh, not just African-American groups, but groups of historians to do something significant to recognize the existence of slavery in Washington's home uh, on, on the mall. And it produced a lot of intense feelings about what should be done, what should be said, what should not be said, what should, uh, you know, what money should be spent. And it, it took a long time. And the meetings that I went to 
um, uh, as I became interested in, in studying this, grew very intense at times. And it was not just black white. Right. There were blacks who wanted to get rid of uh, all kinds of stuff and others who wanted to put up a memorial and, and uh, people who said, hey, listen, George Washington can be learned about all over the country. This is, uh, should be just the site of slavery and held with George Washington. And other people said, no, you got to tell both stories. Right. So uh, I, I, uh, I went to meetings. There was a group called Avenging the Ancestors Coalition. Uh, after I spoke to them for the first time, uh, they invited me to attend their meetings. Um, and uh, they're held once a month. And it was very interesting to um, hear their perspectives and 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 to, and to attend events and 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 uh, what they did was really very innovative in terms of developing new ways of memorializing what had happened. Uh, they developed, in effect, um, uh, some holidays. So, for example, George Washington's birthday is February twenty second. Right. It's been celebrated by school kids throughout this country for decades. And um, it turned out that on his birthday in 1777, um, uh, 97, uh, excuse me, uh, he, um, his, his uh, former uh, chef who had lived in the house in Philadelphia almost this whole time here, right. ran away from Mount Vernon. Um, and um, and so this group decided that they would now celebrate this as Hercules, which is his name, Hercules Freedom Day, and uh, and that's a very clever kind of thing. So right. they yeah. they they would meet down at the uh, uh, site of the uh, where the house was in Philadelphia, and have um, a couple of speeches and 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 talk about. George Washington wasn't such a great guy because he owned 316 enslaved people in his lifetime. Right. Um, and, and so there were a lot of things involving school kids, involving um, adults, involving various groups around the city. So it, it became, a, um, a, you know, a, a very interesting thing that grew over the period from 2002, when the house was first identified by right. this historian and the inquirer ran a long story about it. And 2010, when the uh, site was first opened uh, to the public. So, um, so I got interested in that, but then the next piece, and I'll, I'll make this much shorter was <laughs> Hey, I grew up in New York City. I went to I went to public schools there, and I didn't ever learn about slavery in the North. Right. And there were twenty thousand enslaved people in New York City on the eve of the American Revolution. What What the hell happened? What did I was I sick the one day that they <laughs> talked about it? You know, and and so I gradually began to. Um, be interested in other sites right. where slavery occurred in the North. I visited many places with my wife 
uh, in uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, uh, and New York, uh, and New Jersey, and uh, developed a much better sense. And I, I, was, I was not a historian by training, and I, I learned about slavery in the North by reading the work of many uh, historians who worked in detail over uh, decades, um, sometimes going to the archives, some reading old colonial newspapers, some uh, finding court cases, and, and telling the story of enslaved people, people who searched for freedom, uh, uh, people who escaped, people who escaped and were captured. Uh, so it's a complicated story. Yeah, it is. It is. And and I do, I, I agree that I think that the majority of the history lessons that were taught, even when I was in school, glossed over the fact that it was all across the country. It was not just in the in the southern states, because then you talk about the slavery, you talk about the Civil War, and then it's over. <laughs> yeah, no, it's yeah. A, it disappeared. Yeah, yeah. But the whole the North the North developed um, a belief that it was only a Southern problem, mm -hmm. and there was a denial of of what happened here. Right. Um, and and uh, New York City, for example, um, was a home. As I said, it was the it was the uh, largest enslaved population in a city in the United States or in the colonies except for Charleston, South Carolina. And um, there was a big controversy in New York in uh, starting in, in uh, 1991 when the uh, General Services Administration wanted to build an office building in Lower Manhattan. It's a couple of blocks from where City Hall is now and it's just north of Wall Street. Right. And uh, they had to do an excavation and, and so um, they said, well, we're not going to really find very much because this whole area, which was right off Broadway, um, has been built and rebuilt for uh, uh, almost two centuries. So, uh, you know, we've got to do the dig, so we'll dig. Well, what it turned out was is that when they began this, they realized they found the map and they, and they uh, weren't clear uh, what exactly had happened, but because on the map it showed, uh, it said African burial ground. Actually, it said Negro burial ground. Right. Um, and and so, as part of the preparation for this dig, they did uh, a radar to see what there was, and they started digging, and they found um, remains of formerly enslaved people as deep as 25 feet down. Oh my goodness. In fact, they were intact because no buildings in Manhattan went that far down right. in that yeah. part of Manhattan. And wh what the story is, is that um, the area given to uh, uh, the black population in New York for burying the dead was outside the walls of the city. So it was north of Wall Street. Right. There, it was against the law to bury people inside the city. So where is this land? This land is is swampy. It's it's it gets yeah. shocking. It's land nobody, nobody else wanted. <laughs> what, nobody else could use it. Right. So what what happened in the 19th century 
as Manhattan becomes populated, they filled it all in. That's why there's 25 feet of soil. If there's pressure, yeah. And, and so there was demand, uh, again, let's do something about this. And it, and, and it isn't until 2006 that this becomes um, uh, a, a site, uh, a national park site, and a memorial site. It's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting place with a great visitor center showing films uh, and, and having a lot of artifacts in this period. Um, and there was tremendous conflict again about what to do uh, and how to do it. In fact, the, the uh, General Service Administration said, we got to finish this dig. And oh, by the way, they'd estimated that there were 15 to 20,000 people interred under the ground there. Oh my goodness, that's huge. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. But there were a lot of people who had been enslaved and some free uh, in New York. New York first had enslaved people living in it under the Dutch right. in 1626. So it's got a long history uh, of this. Right. And uh, anyway, um, finally, they, the agreement is reached because a, a lot of people in the black community got upset about digging up the remains and, and not really caring for them uh, in, in ways that they considered proper. So finally, they decide to not dig anymore and they hired a team of forensic anthropologists from Howard University to examine the remains. That took a long time. Right. And they learned an awful lot about the conditions of these people. And needless to say, these people lived under very difficult circumstances. The bones were not great. The, the Just all kinds of yeah. uh, evidence Injury of disease. Then, and and uh, over half of the remains that they dug up were um, kids under three. So they weren't living very long uh, in the uh, 18th century um, if they were living under those conditions. So finally, they, 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 they finished the examinations in Washington, which is very interesting. And, and then there's the decision to reinter them in the site in New York as part of the memorial that's being built. They, they get um, carriages to carry them back in, with coffins right. and they stop at uh, African-American churches in Baltimore, Philadelphia, Newark, and in New York for ceremonies. And then they hold a public ceremony to rebury them um, in, in the, uh, what's now the African burial ground, which is a very interesting site. Unfortunately, it's not, it's not highly visible and you don't, you have to know you want to go there. And if you know you want to go there, you can find it with no problem. Um, so, uh, you know, that's one of the places I went. And I, I, I went uh, to New Hampshire. New Hampshire had, had uh, enslaved uh, Africans living in, in it, uh, from 1646. That's a long time. And, and uh, again, they found some remains and uh, reburied them and had a very moving ceremony uh, in, the, in the city of Portsmouth, which was the capital for a long time. So 
by traveling around and visiting sites, you can really learn about what happened there. Right. Well, and something that I um, took away from, from your book was that the burial sites really became a way to document because all the other maybe places were not, were not preserved. And so this was a way to document that there really were, there really was slavery in, in, in the Northern state. Well, as you know, the subtitle, the, the book is a Recovering Memory. Right. Uh, and one of the ways in which this is done is finding uh, places on the landscape, sacred grounds, right. or not so sacred grounds, but where enslavement occurred. And burying sites, as you mentioned, burying grounds in, in New England, cemeteries here um, become very important. And, and in Pennsylvania now, there are groups of people who meet every fall, fall and, um, and they talk about what they're doing to clean up former burying grounds that are overgrown, that have uh, stones that you know are kind of half buried right. and how to clean them up and how to turn these into memorials for communities large and small. Um, in Philadelphia, there, there's a, a conflict uh, that's gone on since uh, 2011. Uh, uh, there's a, a park, uh, a playground, excuse me, uh, in, uh, in, in South Philadelphia um, that was six blocks south of the founding AME church uh, in the country. They needed a place uh, where they could inter people because their burying grounds on the on the on the property were tiny, and right. the city refused to let them bury people in the city. And and in in that period in the early 19th century, the boundary of Philadelphia was on South Street. Now it's oh, okay. way, yeah. Yeah. way further south of that. So they bought this land. And, uh, and th there's a historian, freelance historian, um, named Terry Buckaloo, who uh, begins to learn about this burying ground and starts to do research on it. And one of the things he does, he goes to City Hall to look at the, the burial records. And the estimates now, since uh, archeologists have done some research, is there between five and seven or 8,000 people who were uh, buried in this very small area. They right. were stacking the, right. the, the people on top of each other. And he was able to turn up the names and a little bit about uh, 2,500 of them. And he's published it and he's got a website um, where he tells a story of different people on different days. And, um, so now, then, then there was a demand from uh, this, this several black groups right. to build some kind of memorial and 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 whatnot. And um, there was conflict because some of the people in that neighborhood didn't want the playground to be destroyed. It's it's in fact the playground is bigger than the burial site, uh, but they finally come to some agreement. And there's a plan now, there's the money, uh, and they are putting something up um, uh, uh, here. And, and so you find this throughout the North, people are uncovering in small towns, 
in cities, in neighborhoods, uh, former uh, burying grounds uh, where uh, free and, and earlier uh, enslaved uh, African-Americans uh, are, are interred. So that that's, that's a, becomes a very important way in which you can tell the story of these communities. That along with the research historians and others are doing freelance people often right. telling the story uh, because they go back to their town records. That, um, um, that kind of brings me, I guess, to uh, talking to you about the concept of collective memory, because I think that was one thing that I really like hit me when I was reading the book that, you know, people die, people move away. And we do, we lose some of that history. We lose some of that memory if it's not, if it's not memorialized in some way. Well, I talk about three ways in which it becomes important. One that I've been talking about now is something on the landscape, right? which is identified with the past and becomes part of the memory. Um, there were also stories, narratives, I call them, but they're stories that people tell. They tell them within families. They tell them in communities. They tell them in larger collectivities. You know, we have national right. narratives, but very local ones. So those need to be told and, and they are told much more effectively when there are places on the landscape where you can point to. And then, and then thirdly, there are rituals and reenactments and events that occur on these spot places where the stories are told to the community, sometimes just in families, sometimes in much larger groups. And that's a way in which collective memories are, um, are told. And so um, what, um, why or how is memory forgotten? what what leads to that? Well, I have a list of things that I've come up with, but I would not claim that this is the only (laughs) ways. That'd be arrogant. Um, The simplest thing is is memory declines over time. Mm -hmm. And unless they're renewed, people forget things. You ask me about things 50 years ago, you know, what did I have for dinner <laughs> on this date in, uh, you know, 1960? I don't know what I had. Right. I don't know where I was. So um, th- that's a very normal process by which communities and people forget things. In fact, we'd be crazy if we had to remember everything. Right. Um, um, but secondly, the destruction of, of uh, uh, significant uh, sites in the landscape. We know about urban renewal. Right. We've knocked down all kinds of uh, things. We've covered them over. This cemetery that I was describing to you was sold to the city and the city didn't do anything with it. And then the city built this playground right. over the land. And those kinds of stories uh, occur so that when, when uh, buildings or sites are destroyed, they're, they're no longer repositories of, of memory. Right. Uh, um, in addition, there is there are incentives for uh, forgetting and remembering at times. Uh, trauma. Um, if you talk to a lot of war vets from Vietnam or World War II, if they can find find one now, yeah. or uh, or conflicts in in uh, more recent conflicts, vets don't like to talk much about their service. Right. I mean, there are a few do, but for many. 
there's too much pain and suffering. And so I, I had uh, people I, in my family who were uh, veterans in World War II, they didn't tell war stories. No. They might have a picture of when, when they were in a uniform. Uh, and and uh, so it's too painful. And, and so uh, the, 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 you avoid the topic. And in addition, sometimes um, there's social sanctions against, against remembering things. Um, and if you, if you start to tell stories, you get punished. Right. You get punished emotionally or in fact in other ways. Um, so, um, painful, uh, painful, uh, memories promote forgetting. Right. It's much easier to, to walk away. And, and we all do that at times. Right. Um, there's also shame and guilt for individuals and groups about the past. Yeah. Um, it's uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is certainly whites in the North are, are very ashamed um, about the story of slavery, especially if it's connected to their families. Right. And yeah, I've, I've, I've experienced that also. Um, I've done some research on slavery in Lancaster County, um, and there's still some families around that are, the, you know, direct descendants of, of the of the families. Sure. And they don't, yeah, they don't want to even associate with it. Um, and it's it's hard. Yeah. My stepdaughter um, uh, found um, a family tree from her father's side. Mm -hmm. And it turns out in Virginia, in the 1850s, that family owned some enslaved people. She teaches a course at the University of Rochester around some of these topics of memory. And the first day she tells her students, this was in my family. Uh -huh. And some of them just like freak out. How can you tell us this and whatnot? And she said, it's, it's important that we share these kinds of things, but it's, it's not easy to do. And, and uh, we see this in, in the South as well as in the North. Um, people just want to uh, avoid that. There's right. a lot of shame on the part of whites if they may have had ancestors who were slaveholders. And there's a lot of guilt on the part of some African-Americans that their ancestors didn't fight and, uh, and try to kill whites. Right. Well, it, it's pretty tough to do when you're in a position of being basically in prison. Uh, right. and, and, and so if, if, you have, if you're feeling those things very strongly, shame or guilt, you just repress. Right. And it just, you just, that's, that's a way of forgetting. Um, and then a, a last thing is we have a, a, a way as humans to reframe the past with new narratives. Right. We develop new stories about them. Uh, new Englanders. Uh, there's a, there's a book uh, about New England. Uh, what did they do with the native peoples who were in say Massachusetts and Rhode Island? And and one of the things that they did is develop a story, a narrative that they told each other uh, that the land was empty when they came. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of the, that story was, well, the, there were some people around, but they didn't know how to use it anyway. So, um, so we right. took it. Yeah. Um, 
and and there's also the lost cause narrative in the South that develops in the uh, 1870s and 80s and 90s um, about how black uh, white co Confederates developed the story um, that they lost the war and and it's uh, the cruelty of the Northerners they had a bigger army uh, but we had a real cause we were better fighters and uh, and that's where a lot of the Confederate stuff the uh, begins statues, it's a yeah. memorial that's right the statues don't don't go up until the uh, 1890s or 1900s um, so there th that becomes very important as you develop new stories about the past that slides over you know what happened and uh you know the whole notion of uh well the enslaved people were treated better by us uh, they get, they got Christianity. They lived better than they would have in Africa. So it really wasn't that bad. That I mean, that's been said for decades. Right. So those are ways in which forgetting what actually happened um, can occur. And then, um, and the and the reason that I think that I, when I read your book, I thought this is really a preservation book. Is when you talk about time, landscapes, and objects into to to the history as a tool for remembering um so can you talk to me a little bit about how like having those like touchstones helps people to to remember the history and remember the past well there are a variety of things that can occur that 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 do that um one obvious way is not sufficient but um introducing these things into school curriculum right telling kids early yeah um and I, I went to a public school in New York City um, that was um, named after a figure from the uh, revolutionary period uh, whose family, uh, not him, but his, his uh, direct uh, ancestors were slaveholders. Right. Uh, that was never, I, no, one, no one told that kind of uh, story. So uh, th there's that. Um, there's also, as I say, building something on the landscape and in communities, uh, sometimes small, sometimes large, um, passing these uh, these kinds of stories on to um, uh, kids as they grow up, and and um, I know that I know some uh, African Americans who told me that uh, when they asked their ancestors at family events to tell the story about slave times and 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 uh, what they heard. Sometimes people say, oh, we don't want to talk about that. It's not for you. Well, that's, that's blocking this. So, uh, so now as people are more willing to tell these stories, just go to television, just go to movies, go to books. Right. We've got a lot more that's publicly available. We can talk. Yeah. more about about those periods it's not that that things are really easy talking especially between whites and blacks about those those um years right. but we've broken through a little bit and i think i think the remembering and telling the history are very very important um and acknowledging the history, not not trying to 
to white to gloss over or whitewash it just it, the facts are the facts and, and we don't have to try to to change that that narrative yeah and and yeah. it's as small as family history and as large as national right. history and everything yeah. in between yeah I, I i really agree with that how um how how do you how do you think that memories should be sustained over time or, or how can they be is that you know building building the landscape and teaching is that kind of tied in with that well i my my view is that it's really up to individual groups and communities to decide what to remember and how to do it and so i think that people are very creative much more creative than any one person is right and so those people um, will come up with various kinds of methods and just seeing what's gone on in the last 25 years um, <clears throat> is, is striking because more has been done than anyone thought was possible 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Yeah, I and some of it's the work of professional historians, some of it's uh, movies, uh, you know, the, a movie like 10 Years a Slave, 12 Years a Slave, I'm right. sorry, um, tells, tells a, a story that was replicated in many ways. Right. There were slave catchers who came up north and they were capturing um, any black person they could and right. selling them down south. Um, and so that suddenly becomes something we're aware of. No, I, I, I agree. I, and I, I, I see a shift in preservation with wanting to be tell a more inclusive story. So yeah. we're, you know, we're saving these, these big house, you know, the big um, uh, house man, that's not the right word, uh, house museums. I was called, I want to call it a house mansion. I'm like, that's the wrong M word. My brain needed to come up with it. But these yeah. big these house museums where you just told the story of, you know, the person who who the house was built for and, and their life, but now they're telling the story of the people who, who were enslaved there or, or worked there, or, you know, all, all the stories of all the people. And I think that's really important because then it allows people, uh, that was one other thing I, I took from your book that allows people to see themselves in the history. So that sure. making the history more inclusive. Sure, and, and visiting sites, um, and, and they're all over the North now. Um, is is very impressionable on people to, and say oh um and and we're 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 opening more site sites so um there it's but sites stories um ceremonies um rituals that occur in these places and museums are starting to tell the stories right look a, a generation ago even the work of uh, of black artists was often not presented in in public museums. That's true. Yeah. And now that's that's you know it's changing. I'm not I'm not I'm not saying it's all better, but yeah. I'm, I am but saying it, it, it's, it's different. different. Yeah, it is different, and the and, and the narrative is changing. It's, it's my grandkids' um, experiences and um, uh, how they think about this can be totally different than mine, which is great. No, and I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I'm, 
um, even my, my age, I see people that are in their early twenties and they are much more open than even I am to like different people and different stories. And not that I'm not that I'm terrible, but I just, I, I was raised by a different generation of people. <laughs> Absolutely. No, yeah. no, that's, uh, and, and, um, having places that are, um, what I'll call prestigious places where the people can go. The, the new museum in Washington, the African-American oh, yes, yes. uh, uh, Museum of Culture and uh, History and Culture is terrific um, to take classes to, to take families to. And this is right on the mall yeah. and right next to the Washington Monument, close to the Lincoln Memorial. That, that's really important in terms of legitimating these stories. It is. Yeah, very, very much so. And we kind of talked early on about projects that you were involved in that, you know, that connect the past with the present. Is there any, is there anything else maybe that you wanted to, to discuss about that? Or do you feel like you covered it when we kind of talked about the different projects that you featured in, in the book? Well, I, it's, it's interesting you ask because uh, this week I've been wa watching a thing on online, which is about uh, Atlantic slavery. Mm. And, and uh, it's a series of events uh, each day. They're doing a, a, a thing. Uh, it's not Zoom, but it's uh, you know equivalent to Zoom. Right. Uh, where people in Britain, and in the Caribbean, and in uh, uh, the United States right. um, are talking about ways uh, to understand how slavery was um, a complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 process. So one of the things I learned in this whole thing um, was that in the uh, 1700s and 1800s, the ties between parts of the North and the Caribbean were very powerful. Oh, yes. Why? Because you could go on a boat and get either, you know, back and forth much more easily than if you had to travel by land. Right. So, so there were farms in Rhode Island, Connecticut, Long Island, the Hudson River Valley, a little bit in New Jersey, where crops and, and animals were grown that were transported to places like Jamaica, where they were used to feed the enslaved people on the sugar plantations. Why? Because the people in Jamaica wanted to plant as much sugar as possible. Right, that they were, they want to maximize, yeah. And the movement back and forth. For example, Martha Washington, who marries George Washington, her first husband has a big plantation in the Caribbean. And, and she, in fact, inherits from his death more enslaved people than Washington ever had right. uh, on his own. And, and there are all kinds of stories between connections. It's not far from, yeah. you know, Jamaica is, is not, or Barbados is not that far from the South, especially. That's true. And, and I, I just learned last week um, along a similar line is that um, Alexander Hamilton was born in the, in the Virgin Islands. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, it, there was, there was a lot of trade and connection between, between the Caribbean and, and, and the, and the continental United States. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, 
so I continue to sort of explore this because it's not it's not something I spent a lot of time on until right. recently. Yeah, it, it is as you as you dig in though. I, I find that with some of the research that I do, you you just kind of get sucked in. <laughs> you want to learn more. <laughs> well, uh, listen, visiting West Africa, which I did in, in uh, the nineteen sixties, oh, and seeing the places where um, people who were captured to be sold into slavery were kept in Ghana, what's now Ghana or Senegal, is also uh, very moving. Oh yeah. And those countries are starting to tell the stories there because there, a lot of the capturing of people was not done by whites who came over, right. but it was it was done by black groups fighting with other black groups. The war, the, the warring tribes. Or, yeah. yeah. Did um, as we're getting ready to to wrap up a little bit, or do you? Um, is there something that maybe you thought about that you wanted to share that I didn't ask you? Uh, before we before we finish, not now, but okay. <laughs> it always comes later. That's what always happens to me. I'm like, oh, I should have said that. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I I go in different directions. With this. <laughs> so, so tell me, where can can someone purchase your your book? Thank you. Oh, where where can someone purchase your book? Oh, Amazon. Okay, on Amazon. Okay, and um. Is is there a, a way that you would um, that listeners could contact you if they if they were curious or wanted to talk to you about something? Sure, I have an email. Okay, sure. Mark M A R C dot Ross R O S S sixty six at gmail.com. Okay, very good. Well, thank you so much for for your time today. I really I really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate it. I did too. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.